Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming here to the Heritage Foundation and joining us for this uh, incredible conversation on this gorgeous day. Um, we're here uh, to, to talk about an incredible book um, about Reagan in space, and, and that's going to transpire over the course of the next several minutes. Let me get you to take a minute to, uh, to silence your cell phone and nudge the other person who never checks to do the same thing in the process. Um, and that'll make the, uh, the morning streamline. Just to give you a course of the events, um, we'll uh, introduce our speaker. He'll come up and he will talk for about 30 to 35 minutes, and then we'll do an exchange. I'll ask a question, and then we'll get one from the audience, and that will fill up the remainder of our hour. Does that sound like a fair use of our time? Okay, great. Well, it's a... Uh, Heritage is proud to co-host this event with the uh, Ronald Reagan Institute, and it is my pleasure to introduce the, uh, the policy director for that incredible organization so that she can introduce our speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, would you give a warm welcome to Rachel Hoff? Well, thank you and good afternoon to you all. I'm pleased to be here today representing the Ronald Reagan Institute, uh, which is the Washington, D.C. office of the uh, Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute located in Simi Valley, California, where the mission of the foundation and the Presidential Library in California is really to preserve the legacy of our 40th president. Our mission at the Ronald Reagan Institute here in Washington is to promote that legacy, uh, to promote President Reagan's values, his beliefs, and his leadership. In that effort, we find common cause with organizations like Heritage, um, who have been fighting for decades for the same uh, values and ideals that, that President Reagan championed. We're, so we're grateful for the opportunity to collaborate on events like this, which explore President Reagan's uh, policies, his decision-making, and his leadership. For many Americans, um, one of the most memorable moments that demonstrated the power of President Reagan's leadership was January 28th, or 28th 1986. On that tragic day, seven brave Americans perished when the space shuttle Challenger exploded over the Atlantic Ocean just 73 seconds into its flight. Millions of Americans watched on TV, and our entire country really bore uh, the weight of that loss. That evening in January, rather than delivering the State of the Union address as scheduled, President Reagan instead addressed the American people from the Oval Office. In the face of this national tragedy, President Reagan's powerful words united our country in our anguish and grief as he assumed the role of consoler-in-chief. But President Reagan also reminded us of our resilience. He reminded us of the importance of exploration and of discovery, of the heroism of our fellow citizens who commit their lives to serving our nation toward those ends. And in the aftermath of this tragedy, President Reagan's leadership remained steady from policy review to funding decisions about the space program. He led the United States through the next steps of that program, dedicated, dedicated to the principle of America's global leadership in space. The future, President Reagan reminds us, did not, does not belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The decisions and policies in the lead up to and the aftermath of the Challenger explosion are among the many episodes that Dr. John Logston addresses in his new book, Ronald Reagan and the Space Frontier. Dr. Logston is Professor Emeritus of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Uh, prior to leaving his active faculty status in June 2008, he was on the faculty of GW for 38 years, 
1987, he founded GW's Space Policy Institute and for many years served as its director. Dr. Logston's book about President Reagan is the third in his series about presidential decision-making in civilian space policy, with two books preceding it focused on Presidents Kennedy and Nixon. Our moderator for this afternoon's discussion will be uh, John Venable, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. And as we listen to today's conversation, uh, let's remember that the historic decisions that we're, we're discussing today are not just things of the past. Uh, many of the issues that Reagan faced, um, from questions about commercial launch to crewed missions or the NASA budget, continue to drive civilian space policy debates today, all these decades later. So please join me in welcoming Dr. John Logston. Thank you, Rachel. All I need is a presentation. And there it is. Oh, I'm supposed to read it in the back of the... <laughs> it's a good thing I know what's there. Uh, all right, next I have to figure out which button does what. Huh. Well, as Rachel said, this, is, this book that we're talking about this morning, afternoon now, uh, is the third in a series since, since I left active faculty status, which meant I didn't have to go to meetings anymore and do management so I could actually go back to doing research and writing, which is my first love. Uh, this was the most difficult of these three books to do. First of all, because it covered eight years rather than the shorter periods of, of the uh, Kennedy and, for different reasons, Nixon presidency. And because a lot of the documents at the Reagan Library still have not been reviewed for declassification. And so I'm not sure I have the whole story, uh, but I have at least a fair amount of the story. Um, I mean, it was, doing this book was logical after doing the Kennedy and Nixon books, but also I was intrigued by this statement in, in a uh, 2003 book by a colleague, Andrew Butrika, that, that Reagan's legacy uh, was, was uh, as, as great, if not greater, than, than any other president. Uh, and I, I wanted to examine that question. Uh, were the 1980s a major turning point in space history? Certainly, and I should say here that I made a conscious choice when I started this book not to deal with national security space. So there's nothing in the book about uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, uh, or most of the rest of, of military space uh, during the Reagan presidency. Then there were some very active issues, but, but uh, you won't find them in this book. Um, as Reagan prepared to enter the White House, uh, his transition team for NASA said that the civilian space program was in an untenable position. Uh, why? Well, uh, uh, it, in 1972, Richard Nixon had decided to focus the program for the 70s around the development of the space shuttle uh, to end exploration, stop traveling to the moon. Then uh, President Carter, who was probably the least supportive of, of a big space program of any American president, uh, to date, uh, uh, basically did not do much with the program. He thought about canceling the shuttle and decided not to, uh, and, and, and said that there would be no major goal for the program, no large program like Apollo. Uh, and, 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 and so the NASA, as Reagan came to the White House, was in very uncertain status. He, Ronald Reagan, was a visionary, and I, I uh, picked out this one quote from his uh, diaries after meeting with a bunch of space people in 1985 he, that evening. He said, space is tr truly is the last frontier. But that was a consistent theme throughout his presidency, space as a frontier, uh, and, and part of his vision. Uh, of, of where it fit into the uh, American scene. Uh, and, and that motivated him rhetorically, 
a little bit less uh, in, in, in decisions uh, to, to fund programs. Uh, probably in this audience, I don't have to talk very much about how Ronald Reagan made decisions, but it was not the style of a hands-on, interventionist, detail-oriented president. Uh, uh, he he, he uh, set out a set of values, uh, thought about the big picture, kept people kind of within the boundaries of his values, and then let the process internal to his uh, administration argue what the country should do, bring it to him for decision, and clearly he was the final decision maker. Uh, I found this quote from, from a book by Marty Anderson, Martin Anderson, you know, uh, made decisions like an ancient king or a Turkish pasha. Uh, and that's, that's a kind of charming uh, description of, of Reagan's I, I, uh, approach. I did find in the record a number of areas where he had specific questions, specific ideas, said, no, this is not what I want. Yes, this is what I do want. Uh, but by and large, uh, this is, I think, a fairly accurate description, which meant that the people involved in the decisions on space were important players in the Reagan administration. Uh, there were two interagency processes for most of this time, one called the Senior Interagency Group for Space, SIG Space, which was run by the National Security Council uh, and, and, and uh, staffed by a, a young Air Force colonel named Gil Rye, and the Cabinet Council on Commerce and Trade, which was one of 11 cabinet councils in the first Reagan administration, staffed by a young secretary of the cabinet named Craig Fuller. Those two young men, and then the person that controlled the paper flow in and out of the Oval Office, uh, Dick Darman, uh, later head of OMB, among other things, uh, were all space enthusiasts and resonated to the sense that Reagan liked space and they were going to serve to him the options for having a strong space program. This picture is kind of fun. Uh, that, that's uh, Gil Rye in the middle of the picture, the tall uh, person with uh, Craig Fuller to his left, your right. And Jim Baker, at that point chief of staff, showing off a white glove, which had been left behind by Michael Jackson during a visit to the White House. The picture's kind of cute. Uh, on the loyal opposition, not really that opposed, were the director of OMB, David Stockman, who, uh, as appropriate for his role, was the keeper of the public purse, shared Reagan's ideology of, of limiting government spending, cutting it where possible, and the science advisor, a man named George J. Keyworth, who was an Edward Teller protege. Uh, Keyworth was an outsider in the White House, uh, he had lots of ideas, but I would argue, after looking at the record, a very limited influence. Uh, so he, he was the counter-idea person uh, to what actually happened. Uh, the leaders of NASA were chosen before the first shuttle flight in April of 1981, uh, but announced only after the, the flight. Uh, Jim Beggs, James Beggs, still alive, uh, uh, a executive from General Dynamics at that point with a long uh, history of working for NASA and the Department of Transportation. Uh, and then Hans Mark, who is the one in the center of the picture with the crew cut, who had been Carter's Secretary of the Air Force and head of the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, a fascinating character uh, who had his own ideas about the, the space program which are, remain controversial. This is Reagan in his first encounter with the space shuttle uh, in November of 1981 on the second shuttle mission. He was in Houston and was convinced to come down to Johnson Space Center and talk to the crew in orbit. Reagan, Reagan talked to shuttle crews more than any other president since has talked to or before. Uh, talk to crews while they were in orbit or beyond. Um, 
So those were the players. Uh, Beggs and Mark had said uh, in their con confirmation hearings, they had two priorities, getting the shuttle operational and getting administration approval for the next big program, a space station. And that indeed is what they did. First, there was a review of national space policy. It started in late 1981 with the science advisor, Jay Keyworth, in charge of the review. By the time it ended up being announced on the 4th of July, 1982, uh, in a kind of internal coup, the National Security Council had taken leadership away from OSTP uh, and, and created the senior interagency group space. Uh, and and, and uh, in a sense, the rest of the policy was a ratification of the status quo, including the idea that the shuttle would be the launch vehicle for all government payloads, which, which turned out to be the, one of the early controversies. Uh, it's the first national policy that mentioned NASA space commercialization as an important element of what the country should do. And so it said the, the government would create uh, a, a regulatory and policy climate conducive to the private sector in space. Kind of a sidebar, I'm now on the regulatory and policy committee of the NASA Advisory Council. So we're still trying to act on that policy directive from 1982. Here are the decisions I'll talk about in, in summary form uh, in, in the eight years of Reagan presidency. What to do about the space shuttle, whether or not to approve a space station, how to incentivize, how to uh, foster space commercialization, how to open the U.S. program to international participation uh, of friends and allies and potentially also the Soviet Union, and whether or not to set a major specific goal or destination uh, for the program to guide it as it went into the future. Now, let me go through those set of decisions rather quickly. Uh, the problem with the shuttle is that it was created on a myth. The myth was that it could be flown inexpensively and, and frequently. And the planning as Reagan took office was something like 40 launches a year. The price charged was about $20 million, where the cost was actually probably uh, close to a billion dollars a launch. So there was a big gap between cost and price, but NASA had signed up users at the price uh, and, and committed to that price through 85. So uh, the, the space program was losing money on every launch. Uh, and, and, and that meant that it could not do the kind of science missions that, that it was uh, set up to do. It was in danger because of this policy of becoming basically a trucking company for others. Uh, Mr. Begg said, we'll never fly 40 missions a year. He reduced the uh, target rate to 24 a year and, and internally said, plan for 18 or 12. Uh, just to say it here, uh, the most shuttle flew in any calendar year was nine. Uh, so you see the uh, plans these days with uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, the current companies that say they're going to offer frequent space transportation at an affordable price. History suggests to put a slight discount uh, based, based on this experience. Um, the idea that the shuttle was regular and routine and safe uh, permeated policy, so there were lots of discussions of who gets to fly. Some people in the White House said, why not put a passenger compartment in the back and fly 100 people? You know, how much, how much money could we make selling uh, flights on the shuttle? Uh, that didn't go very far. Uh, as a diplomatic tool, the idea of inviting other countries to fly their citizens on the shuttle was very attractive. And then as a marketing tool, once 
competition to the shuttle for commercial launch contracts appeared in the early 80s with the uh, entry into service of the European slash French launcher Ariane. Ariane could fly its customers down to South America where their launch site was, pretty attractive incentive. But NASA decided, and the White House agreed, we could fly, if a, comp if a country or a company um, uh, signed up to launch their satellite on the shuttle, they could fly a person to go along with it, which is also a pretty strong marketing incentive. Uh, a space flight. That actually happened twice. A uh, Mexican engineer and a Saudi prince flew on the shuttle up together with their country's satellites. Uh, and uh, Senator Jake Garn, represented, then Representative Bill Nelson, said, hey, we control the money for the shuttle. Why don't we get a ride? And, and, and NASA said, okay, you can make an inspection trip, uh, which is kind of interesting uh, way to exercise congressional uh, privilege. Uh, NASA actively got into the marketing business, which is a strange thing for a R&D agency, trying to, on a global basis, get uh, countries to, and companies to contract with the shuttle uh, to launch their satellites. Uh, talked about the ace moving company in, 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 in this sign. Um, uh, and, and said, eventually, uh, we can fly regular folks, uh, space flight participants, maybe even a teacher. Uh, as the shuttle entered service and its limitations, I, I, again, I should say the shuttle was a remarkable technological achievement but a policy mistake, I think the biggest policy mistake uh, in the history of the U.S. space program is building the program around shuttle launches. Uh, on one side, you had the departments of uh, commerce and transportation who were trying to become advocates for a private space launch industry and found they weren't competing with Europeans, they were competing with the shuttle because they could never make money as long as the shuttle price was subsidized. And that led to very vigorous arguments uh, in, internal to the government. On the other side was the national security community and particularly the National Reconnaissance Office who said, hey, we have signed up to launch all of our critical national security satellites on this asset, on the shuttle. We don't control it, and NASA does. We don't like that. Its performance doesn't quite meet our requirements of getting things uh, in polar orbit or maybe even one orbit missions. Uh, we need something other than the shuttle. Uh, and and a, a very nasty fight, uh, which the outcome of which is the DOD promised to use at least one third of all available shuttle flights and to develop its own large rocket, which ended up being the Titan IV. Um, in the middle of this argument, Reagan was reelected overwhelmingly in 1984, and the first term people began to leave, uh, and, and their replacements, both at, at the very senior level, with Don Regan becoming the chief of staff, uh, Admiral Poindexter becoming the national security advisor, and both uh, Craig Fuller moving to the vice president's office and Gil Rye leaving. Uh, Hans Mark left NASA in 1984 as deputy. Uh, the White House forced James Beggs to accept as his replacement a man named Bill Graham, who came out of the uh, uh, nuclear weapons uh, 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 side of, 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 of the Republican Party, had no space experience. Uh, and then Beggs was indicted for uh, fraud while he was at General Dynamics. Whether that indictment was a payback for his resistance to the White House or not is, remains controversial. He thinks it was. Uh, and so uh, in January of 1986, 
Bill Graham was the acting administrator of NASA, and there was nobody in the White House with deep experience in space issues. And then came Challenger. Uh, as, as Rachel said, 73 seconds after launch, it didn't really explode. Uh, but it looked like it exploded. It, it, it caught on fire, uh, and the fireball uh, consumed the, the, the uh, orbiter and broke it apart. Reagan was in the Oval Office getting ready to meet with the press prior to his State of the Union address when Vice President Bush and Admiral Poindexter came in and said the shuttle just exploded. And he went next door, and this picture shows uh, Reagan, uh, Poindexter, uh, Pat Buchanan, Don Regan, uh, others, uh, looking at the replay of the accident. Uh, after initially saying, I'm going to go on with the State of the Union address, he changed his mind in the afternoon. Peggy Noonan crafted his address, and he went on television at 5 p.m. that evening. And Ladies and gentlemen, knows this. I'd plan to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. Uh, Reagan, in the immediate aftermath of his speech, told Noonan, gee, I didn't do very well. I didn't do a good job. But overnight, the White House was flooded by congratulatory telegrams and phone calls. Uh, and so by the next morning, Reagan said, well, I guess I did pretty well. And, and, and you know, that, that address has li lived on as one of his greatest. He said, even Frank Sinatra called to congratulate me, and Sinatra doesn't call very often. So... I guess that was his standard. Uh, there were vigorous debates of how to react to the accident with two questions. One, one was, should we build another shuttle? And the other was, should we take the shuttle out of the business of launching commercial satellites? The answers to those two questions were yes and yes. Uh, the shuttle... Uh, a new shuttle, Endeavor, which is out in Los Angeles now, uh, was built. Uh, the money was showing way you used to be able to do things. Two billion dollars was found sitting kind of unused in the DOD budget, and it was transferred to the NASA budget uh, to finance the, the uh, replacement orbiter. And NASA canceled 44 contracts uh, to launch uh, commercial contracts to launch communication satellites and said uh, in, in the fall of 1986 the shuttle would no longer accept new contracts. Government was at liable for those cancellations and it did in fact lose a court case from Hughes Aircraft uh, on them. Uh, by the end of 86 there was a new policy for launch which said the shuttle will be used only when human presence is involved required and where its unique attributes are, are essential. And, and so it became basically a launcher for NASA and ultimately for the space station. Uh, that space station was something NASA wanted to do almost since the day it would opened, which was 60, 61 years ago and one day, yesterday, October 1st, 1958 was the day that NASA opened for business. Uh, the, the, uh, the process of getting the station before Reagan for approval was tortuous and, and showed the, the bureaucratic nature of policymaking during the Reagan administration. Uh, it, it took uh, basically two and a half years before it came before the president for final decision. Uh, lots of debates. NASA hoped to sell the shuttle station, as it had sold the sh shuttle, as a system for use by everybody, national security, military, commercial, civilian. 
the intelligence community and the mainline DOD said, no, we're not interested. We think you should focus your attention on making this shuttle meet its promises. And so there was a vigorous fight. Eventually, the path to Reagan was changed from the National Security Council SIG space to the Cabinet Council on Commerce and Trade on December the 1st. 1983, in the cabinet room, Reagan was briefed on the arguments on the shuttle. And then the next couple of days, the OMB presented, in the context of the next year's budget, several options for going forward. And Reagan basically picked the option that said, yes, we will develop a permanently manned space station, but we won't spend a lot of money doing it. He announced that in his State of the Union address. Our second great goal is to build on America's pioneer spirit. I said something funny? This is I said America's next frontier. And that's to develop that frontier. A sparkling economy spurs initiatives, sunrise industries, and makes older ones more competitive. Nowhere is this more important than our next frontier, space. Nowhere do we so effectively demonstrate our technological leadership and ability to make life better on Earth. The space age is barely a quarter of a century old, but already we've pushed civilization forward with our advances in science and technology. Opportunities and jobs will multiply as we cross new thresholds of knowledge and reach deeper into the unknown. Our progress in space taking giant steps for all mankind is a tribute to American teamwork and excellence. Our finest minds in government, industry, and academia have all pulled together, and we can be proud to say we are first, we are the best, and we are so because we're free. So, approved a major program, a program we're still with us. There are, as of today, nine people in orbit. Uh, from four different space agencies. Uh, three are coming down tomorrow, I think. Uh, uh, the program got off to a rocky start because it was not accompanied by a budget commitment significant to get it moving forward. Uh, and by 1987 was already well over budget uh, and, and beginning a process of downsizing. Uh, the private sector uh, developed a proposal that was basically competitive with the space station uh, as, as part of this incentive uh, or uh, movement towards commercialization. Uh, and, and so there were a lot of fights uh, in the remaining uh, four years of the Reagan administration. Ultimately, President Reagan, when push came to shove, consistently supported the station so I think you can say it's one of his major legacies. And it was in July of 1988 that the name Freedom was assigned to the U.S. proposal. He proposed uh, inviting friends and allies to participate in the station. That was um, a logical extension of opening the program overall to international cooperation. First of all, by inviting people to uh, fly their citizens, uh, other countries' citizens, on the shuttle. One of the things that surprised me uh, in doing this research is I discovered we were very close to flying a Chinese scientist on the shuttle. Uh, Reagan had visited China in 1984. There had been discussions of flying a, a Chinese experiment accompanied by a Chinese scientist on the shuttle. Uh, they were well advanced at the time of Challenger, which basically stopped that uh, possibility. And it's interesting to say, if, if we had involved China in our space program in the 80s, how might that have changed history today? But you can't live life backwards. Uh, so uh, Reagan... Uh, as in kind of a last-minute initiative, agreed to make the station international, and that ended up with European Space Agency, Japan, and Canada becoming ma major partners in the uh, station. 
the negotiations to do that were difficult. There was a hope that, that it could be done in a few months. It turned out to take four years uh, of, of hard negotiations with the Department of Defense first as an institution and then in the person of Cap Weinberger, Secretary of Defense, intervening in the process, bringing it to a stop, rewriting the uh, negotiating guidelines. Ultimately, uh, agreement was reached, was signed September the 29th, 1988. Uh, which has happened also to be the day that the shuttle uh, returned to flight after the Challenger accident. There had been some thought of inviting the Soviet Union, to, but that didn't go very far. The United States had, in 1972, signed a cooperation agreement with the Soviet Union that led to the Apollo-Soyuz project. It had renewed that in '77. But at the height of the evil empire uh, sensibility in 1982 allowed the agreement to elapse. So there was no U.S.-Soviet framework agreement in the mid-80s. Uh, there were suggestions of things that could be done together. Uh, modest the response before Gorbachev was, was uh, basically non-responsive. Then Gorbachev came in, different attitude. And he was influenced by a fascinating character named Roald Zagdeev, uh, who ended up at, a, a professor at the University of Maryland, married to Dwight Eisenhower's granddaughter, uh, Susan. Uh, uh, and the organization I'm on the board of called the Planetary Society, with Carl Sagan as one of our founders, suggested that the United States and the Soviet Union should plan on going to Mars together. Uh, the U.S. resisted that, but Gorbachev took the suggestion and proposed it in the May 1987 summit meeting with uh, Reagan, 87 or 88. Uh, here they are in Red Square talking about going to Mars together. Didn't amount to anything, but it's fascinating, again, to say, what if Reagan had said yes, where would we have been? Commercialization. Uh, um, The first attempt was to commercialize not only Earth observation, but weather satellites. That turned out to be an absolute economic failure. Uh, commercializing space launch was an idea that persists to today. Uh, lots of bureaucratic fight to make the Department of Transportation the lead agency uh, for uh, commercial. There is an office of commercial uh, commercial space launch in DOT uh, today, uh, market that didn't uh, evolve very quickly, and then a lot of talk about multi-billion dollar industries in orbit, and a lot of policy incentives first in 84 and then again in 88. After the Challenger accident, the ability to do experiments in orbit disappeared until the space station reappeared 25 years later. And so basically, on commercialization, it was an idea well before its time, where ideology outpaced uh, reality. Uh, but I would say it, 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 the legacy in saying that space is an area for commercial activity is one of the Reagan administration's great uh, contributions. I don't think you'd have Elon Musk, et cetera, if it were not for the discussions in the 80s of space commercialization. Uh, the idea of leadership was a persistent theme. Um, there was a report timing <laughs> rather poor because it was right after the Challenger accident that suggested uh, settling the highlands uh, of the moon and, and, and then on to Mars. Uh, that didn't go very far. Uh, the new head of NASA, Jim Fletcher, who was the old head of NASA, asked Sally Ride, to do a report that suggested a, a slightly more measured approach to the future. As Reagan left office in 1988, a new national policy said to expand human activity and presence into the solar system and beyond, but set no major goals, no return to the moon, no on to Mars sort of destination. Still, 
uh, Reagan persisted in, in seeing space as an area of, of, of uh, great American contributions. These, I think, are his concrete legacies, uh, a realistic policy for the shuttle, uh, a, a major new space program in terms of the space station, uh, a, a, a push towards international engagement, which still is very alive today, and laying the foundation for space commercialization. But the NASA budget uh, at the start of the Reagan administration was 0.1% of the federal budget, and at the end of the Reagan administration was 0.1, I'm sorry, 1.0% of the federal budget. So and in budget terms, in priority terms, uh, Reagan did not back up his rhetoric with the uh, allocations uh, to, to match the rhetoric. But the rhetoric lives on. Uh, this is a speech he gave September the 22nd, 1988, just before, a uh, uh, few months before leaving office, which I think captures his views better than any single uh, statement. Because in the next century, leadership on Earth will come to the nation that shows the greatest leadership in space. It is mankind's manifest destiny to bring our humanity into space, to colonize this galaxy, and as a nation, we have the power to determine whether America will lead or will follow. I say that America must lead. The, the nation that has achieved the greatest human freedom on Earth must be the nation to create a humane future for mankind in space, and it can be none other. It is only in a uni universe without limits that we will find a canvas large enough for the vastness of the human imagination. Mankind's journey into space, like every great voyage of discovery, will become part of our unending journey of liberation. In the limitless reaches of space, we will find liberation from tyranny, from scarcity, from ignorance, and from war. We'll find the means to protect this Earth and to nurture every human life and to explore the universe. Let us go forward. This is our mission. This is our destiny. Not bad uh, as a legacy. Uh, let's hope we can live on those words in the 21st century. Thank you all. This is a, a, a thick read, and it's well-researched, but uh, your presentation did a great deal of bringing out the personalities and the backstories that are so critical to where we are right now. So uh, as, a, as a reminder, um, we've got about 20 minutes left, and uh, if you have uh, questions, raise your hand, and we'll move a microphone over to you. Um, until I see a hand, I'm going to go on with the, the bout of questions, if that's all right with you, Dr. Longston. So um, we live in a, a time of great power con competition now. The national defense strategy that came out uh, in 2018 actually put that back on the forefront uh, of the day. And when you read your book, you describe uh, President Reagan um, as seeing space as the, a, a great venue for that competition of that day. Is that a fair reading? Yeah, I think it is. He saw space more as an arena for demonstrating American exceptionalism, American ex uh, greatness in the abstract than head-on competition with, at that point, the Soviet Union. No other country uh, had, had gotten a significant space program by the 1980s. Uh, when, when, when NASA was trying to sell the space station to Reagan, they made a purposeful decision to downplay what the Soviet Union was doing and play up the economic potential, the leadership potential of the station. Clearly, the Soviet Union was in the background. Uh, and if, if, 
if one goes back and looks, uh, the, the Time magazine, October the 4th, or whatever the date was, 1986, uh, the cover story was Soviet Union takes the lead in the space. So the competition was very real. Uh, and and, and, and in, 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 even in the internal deliberations, as much as I could reconstruct them, it was more, uh, this is something the United States should be doing because of the character of the country than we should do it because the Russians are doing it. Uh, very different than Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy every th said in a recorded meeting, everything we do should be uh, aimed at getting on the moon before the Russians. You never saw uh, Reagan with that kind of rhetoric. This uh, microphone, it looks like it shuts on and off, and so we'll have to give it a second where we kick in. Uh, we had an opportunity to talk uh, before this, and we were talking about tech transfer over the years and how that's helped or hurt the United States and our allies. And when you mention it in your book, we talk about the space shuttle and, our, and then moving into the International Space Station and, and the danger and the, the, the potential loss of technology in bringing uh, the Chinese or the Russians on board. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, it was certainly a concern in the national security community of whether we could craft an agreement uh, to for intimate cooperation in human spaceflight that would uh, include technology safeguard controls uh, to, to guard against unwanted technology transfer. Uh, there was lots of discussions in, in the process of negotiating the space station agreements. It was one of the things that, that most concerned the Department of Defense in those negotiations. And this was the time, of, for those of you that have been around a long time, of Richard Pearl, Frank Gaffney, uh, people with, with very significant concern about tech transfer. Uh, and, and, and so the, the only way to, to deal with that is to uh, design a relationship with so-called clean interfaces so that didn't need to be a lot of flow of technology across the collabor collaboration. Oh, fascinating. Um, well, we've got a couple of questions, and uh, Julie, if you would, right here in the front. Uh, Tom Spohr. Hi, Tom Spohr here at the Heritage Foundation. On your slide, you, I noticed you said when you were speaking of the shuttle, you said something it was supposed to be operational, parentheses, that turned out to be false or something right. like that. I was hoping you could elaborate on that. that oh, more, more than you want to. <laughs> uh, I mean, the definition of operational, the, the shuttle started in its development uh, on, on the analogy that it was going to be airline-like. You know, you just land it, turn it around, take off an hour later. Uh, and that mythology uh, persisted into the belief that, that you could uh, do repetitive launches of the shuttle uh, uh, without major changes in between the launches, uh, major refurbishment. Uh, and it just turned out not to be true. Uh, as I said, the shuttle technologically was a remarkable achievement, but uh, it pushed too many of its elements, uh, the thermal protection, the tiles, the turbo pumps that, that powered the engines. Uh, so it took lots of money and lots of uh, hand-on time. Uh, uh, but NASA had gotten itself in the position that it could not market the shuttle uh, to customers until it was declared operational. And so uh, fundamentally, op uh, arbitrarily, after four flights, said, oh, we're now operational. But bought the myth that not only was it operational, but it was uh, the risks were very low, and so you could start putting more or less people off the street uh, on it rather than train risk accepting test pilots. Uh, so, it, uh, as I said, uh, the, the, the myths surrounding the shuttle, I think, uh, were the greatest policy mistake in the history of the space program. Uh, that makes me 
kind of persona non grata to the pe people still who are shuttle huggers. Uh, but but uh, I think it's true. Never heard that term before, shuttle, shuttle huggers. Hugger. Yeah, that's a good one. Go to Houston. <laughs> Sorry, did I hear you earlier when you were talking about uh, post-challenger mishap um, that a transfer of a large amount of capital went from the Department of Defense over to NASA. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. So obviously there was an emotional upheaval with a loss. Was there controversy surrounding that uh, transfer? Well, the controversy was uh, there was a decision in principle uh, in the executive branch that, that a replacement shuttle should be built. But OMB said, you know, where are we going to, how are we going to pay for it? Uh, is it going to come out of the NASA budget? You're talking two and a half, three billion dollars over a period of three or four years. And, and, uh, and finally, uh, leaders in Congress, and the, the particular people were Senator Ted Stevens of, of Alaska and Senator Jake Garn uh, of Utah. Uh, Jake had by that time flown on the shuttle, had kind of a vested interest, and, and talked Stevens into allowing, who was chair of the DOD Appropriations Subcommittee, uh, to, to look in the DOD budget where there's you know, $2 billion of kind of spare change. Uh, the, uh, the staff members that affected this transfer. Uh, uh, on, on Garn's side was a guy named Stephen Kuharski. On Stephen's side was a guy named Sean O'Keefe. Sean later ended up being NASA administrator. Uh, I'm sure back in 1986 he could have had no idea that that would have happened. So, but you know, it's back in a time where you could do something like that in a sense, with nobody watching. Uh, these days, I don't think you can move that amount of money internal to the budget without somebody paying attention. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yes, yes, sir, right here, Julie. Let's see, over, I'm Jack Tierney. Um, over Jack and I started teaching together at Catholic... Catholic University in, I think it was during the Great Depression or something. <laughs> I don't know. Harding, Harding was there, I think. No, it was 1966. Uh, the rhetoric over time about America going into space is part of the most uplifting rhetoric uh, of all time. And I play this recording to my classes still. And Reagan was tremendous. I served for eight years in there. And Kennedy was also tremendous. It is my opinion. And I wondered if you comment on this at least. And I play it to my classes. They don't even know what the hell it's all about that when John Kennedy went to Rice University on September 12th, 1962, he gave a speech that stands out head and shoulders above any other speech about America outer space. Am I wrong? Was, was there anything better than that? Well, Jack, if, 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 if you think about the rhetoric in the excerpt I played at the end, I think the rhetoric is equivalent almost to Kennedy's rhetoric. We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Uh, but, but the context of the Kennedy speech and in, in the context of just starting Apollo and, and, and explaining why we were doing it, I think, is, is, is what... Has, and, and the skill of, of, of uh, Sorensen in particular as Kennedy's speechwriter made that a memorable piece of rhetoric. Uh, Again, sidebar, that line, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard, came from NASA in the NASA draft of the speech. Uh, but but uh, Sorensen pumped them up uh, to make them rhetorically more beautiful. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you arrive in Boston at Logan Airport, at least on United Airlines, you walk through the halls and they're playing that speech. Uh, and even before all of this summer, you heard it over and over this summer, uh, the, the, the Rice University speech. Uh, uh, but I think some of, uh, some of Reagan's rhetoric, where the context wasn't quite as dramatic, uh, is, is, is almost as good as Kennedy's. 
Talk about an academic argument <laughs> against two long-term colleagues at yeah. Catholic University. That's, the years have been great ones between you, I would imagine. Got a couple more questions. Yes, sir. Henry Now, George Washington University, colleague of John's. Uh, John, what surprised you most in, this, in your research about Reagan? What did you go in expecting and what was sort of most, most startling? Secondly, was there ever any point where SDI intersected with the debate about civilian space? I'm wondering about this $2 billion. Why, why didn't somebody say, hey, wait a minute, that ought to go to SDI? Right? <laughs> uh, and thirdly, um, Reagan wrote a lot now, we know, back in the 50s and 60s, thinking about what he might do if he became president. Uh, actually, an incredible projection of some of the things that he did then, 20 years later. Maybe you didn't look at this material, but is there anything going back before his time in office that would relate to his understanding of space and his enthusiasm for space? Uh, let's see, those are three. Let, let me deconstruct those. Uh, First uh, one was about the surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess just how dependent he was on the process of getting things in front of him for issues, just how much of a hands-off decision-maker he was surprised me a bit. Having written about Kennedy and Nixon, both of whom were relatively interventionist in, in their management styles. Uh, so uh, uh, there, there's a classic uh, Reagan quote to student groups in the 70s, I think, while well, he was still governor, or maybe after he, uh, about, about uh, he was being out of touch with progress. Uh, and he said, you know, uh, maybe I don't use the latest technology, but m my generation invented it. Uh, so he was not a technologically, technologically sophisticated individual. Uh, he, he told uh, Jim Beggs, as, as he was interviewing for space, he said, I don't really understand this very much, but I like it. Uh, so I think he had an intuitive sense of the importance of the space achievement to, to the messages he wanted to send about the United States. What was the last one? Oh, uh, oh yeah. Uh, the day he was briefed on station uh, was December the 1st, 83. On November the 30th, 83, he was briefed on the first results of the study of SDI following his March 23rd speech and came away very disappointed that uh, it seemed out of the technological reach of the country to actually do what he wanted. Uh, so the, 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 in a sense, I think he wanted to do something positive with approving the station because he was disappointed in what he could approve for SDI. But I didn't, never saw any flow of funds or competition for funds. Uh, I mean, the, the DOD said, don't spend money on space station, but spend it on improving the shuttle, not transferring to other national security programs. Sir, we've got time for one more question. This young you lady back there is right there in the back. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my question is, when Kennedy gave his Rice University speech in November of 62, <clears throat> He mm -hmm. kind of outlined an example of American progress defined by American exceptionalism through the use of technology. Would you say that Reagan kind of followed in that path and believed that progress could be done through American exceptionalism in space? I think he believed that it was the progress was a result of American exceptionalism. Uh, you know, he's, he he uh, over and over, and I. I uh, ran one of them. He said, you know, because we're Americans, because we're free, this is what we can do. This is why we're great. So I think he, he deeply believed that, that uh, uh, this foundation published a paper X years ago that I used by Steve Hayward, uh, one of Reagan's biographers, that called it idiosyncratic conservatism, a great faith in the future. Uh, Reagan was nothing if not an optimist, uh, and, and, and his optimism about the potential of technology to make life better, including space, I think was one of his defining characteristics. 
Well, fabulous. Ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, we're at the end of our time. Uh, it's uh, trains run on time here at Heritage. I'd like to take a minute or two to thank the AV team back there, Julie, for your work with a mic and uh, this handsome audience for being so uh, well attentive and for your great questions. And uh, Dr. Logson, if I could take a minute to thank you. It was a fabulous presentation, and I commend this book, which is on sale out in the hallway, to all of you. Would you give him a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you. Thank you very much. Good.